We're in Luke 19 today. We read the, the account a few moments ago. Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem just days before he will be crucified in that same city. Paying particular attention today, um, not to the Hosannas, but to the lament of Jesus that follows the Hosannas. And um, Luke is the only gospel writer who includes Jesus' lament in his account of the triumphal entry. Only Luke gives us an account of the lament here on this day. Matthew records a lament, a very similar lament of Jesus um, also. He places that lament at a different spot in his material. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 23. And that um, lament, while similar, is um, very intriguing and meaningful in its, in its own uh, way. And in the particular words that Jesus offers there. And so that lament in Matthew 23 will be a good supplement to your Holy Week meditations um, beyond today. If you want to read that companion, what we could call a companion lament to the one that we're looking at today. Now Matthew, in his account of Jesus' lament, does not include the detail that Jesus wept when he gave that lament. All Matthew does is tell us what Jesus said. He may or may not have wept when he said it. We don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us. Luke does tell us that when Jesus offered this lament on the first Palm Sunday, that he did it weeping. We read that in verse 41 of Luke 19. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And we're going to park there for a minute on this small detail that Jesus wept over the city when he saw it. We're going to look at the words that he speaks in just a few minutes because his words have something that they communicate to us. But there's something communicated to us first by just observing not Jesus' words but his actions that he wept. What does that tell us about him? What does it tell us about him that he was moved to that extended outpouring of sorrow when he saw the city? And moving on from from there, does it hold any meaning for us in terms of how we live the Christian life and the kind of heart that we carry around inside of us as Jesus followers? In other words, is there anything we can learn from observing Jesus here? The weeping Christ as he approaches the city. Well, let's, let's begin here. Let's begin by observing that Jesus is not the first person to weep over the condition of Jerusalem. He's not the first. 
He's in a long line. The prophet Jeremiah wept over the condition of Jerusalem. We know that. We talked a little bit about his lamentations last Sunday. If you open up that small book, you'll find it. Chapter 2, verse 11, these words recorded by Jeremiah, written by Jeremiah. He writes, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. Got anybody else in mind that you know wept over the condition of Jerusalem? Nehemiah, living far away from home. You remember he was brought the report of the city by some of his friends who came to see him and and told him about the, the pitiful condition of the city. This is 140 years after Jeremiah wrote, okay? The temple in the city destroyed in 586 BC. Nehemiah, right, 440-ish, okay? 140 years later, living away from home, hears about the pitiful condition of the city. And we open up Nehemiah chapter one and we read that when he was told about the great shame of the people and how the walls have been torn down and the gates have been burned, we read that I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And one point of connection between Jeremiah, Jeremiah's weeping over the city and Nehemiah's weeping over the city is that both of them connected the, the physical condition of the city, the broken down condition, they both connected it to the sin of the people. The, the horrible spiritual condition that the people were in. They're, they're not just weeping and mourning like we would if our house burned down and we're standing there looking at all of our possessions gone and the, the destruction of the physical thing. It's not like that. They, yeah, they're, they're mourning over the physical aspect of the destruction, but... More so, the, the important thing is that they're connecting that physical destruction to the spiritual, the rebellious spiritual condition of the people, the sin that has brought on and led to the physical destruction. We know that because Jeremiah spells that all out in detail in Lamentations. And Nehemiah, when he prays, he connects it. Oh God, we have sinned against you. I know why this is happening and I know why there's shame. It's all connected to the sin of our fathers and our sin. And we have rejected you and rebelled. And that is the point of connection. They know it's the spiritual condition, the ugly spiritual condition that's led to the pitiful physical condition. And so now we come to Jesus in this long line of those who weep over the condition of Jerusalem. And we see that sin against God is his starting point too. He doesn't start with the physical stuff. He's going to talk about the the coming physical destruction when we get to verses 43 and 44, but he begins with the spiritual blindness. If you'd only know the things that made for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. 
There's something, there's a, something spiritual that they can't see. He begins with their spiritual condition, their posture towards him as the son of God and the coming rejection of him that will lead to their physical destruction. So Jesus is in this same long line of those who weep over the sins of God's people. Now, he's in another long line too, isn't he? He's not only in the line of those who weep over the sins of God's people, he's also in a long line of those who call out the sins of God's people. That, that was the whole prophetic office. It was the whole line of the prophets. They were the ones who came to call out the sins of God's people, call them to repentance. And Jesus did that too. There's huge tracks of gospel scripture where he's calling out the sins of the people, the sins of the religious people, especially the religious leaders. And he's confronting the people with their sinfulness. So he's in that line too, the line of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Micah and so many other prophets who were callers out of sin. And so what we want to notice and hold up side, side by side, hold up to the light side by side, is that Jesus both called out the sins of God's people and wept over the sins of God's people. And this is what we're calling this morning a helpful model. I want to commend to you what we find in verse 41 as a helpful model for what the Christian heart will look like. What we find here in verse 41, besides being a great revelation of the beauty and tenderheartedness and mercy of Jesus It's also a helpful diagnostic tool to see if our own mind and heart is beginning to look like Jesus. And here's how we can self-diagnose in this area. First of all, most of us don't have any trouble calling out the sins of God's people. Okay, so now we're talking about the church. So we're making a little bit of a jump here. We're saying, okay, the church universal God's people. And most of us don't have any trouble calling out the sins of God's people. There's no shortage of Christians who spend time calling out the sins of God's people. There's no shortage of platforms on which to call out the sins of God's people. And of course, there's no shortage of sins for which to call God's people out for. And I thought about spending some time this morning getting specific and naming some things. I just decided I'm not going to go there today. We, we know a lot of those things. We could make a, a huge long list. And that's not really the point this morning to, to name specific sins. We're emphasizing something else today. And that is the idea that there are many who are ready to call out sin, but are there any ready to also weep over the sins of God's people? 
And if not, if we're not weeping with real tears, at least carrying around an inner posture of great sorrow and lament over the sins of God's own people. Not only great sorrow and lament, but also repentance and a hope for better things to come and more faithfulness to Jesus. And so I think the important question for me and for you is what kind of response have I had to the sins of God's own people? And we have to be aware of the moment around us, the moment in which we live and understand together what you already know by through your own relationships or for reading articles or any of these things. And that, and that is that this is a moment unlike any other, especially in America, when such a large number of people have already walked away from the church or are very strongly considering walking away from God's own people, from the fellowship of God's own people. So discouraged, and even some have used the word disgusted, are they by the sins that they see among God's people. And that may be you, that may be someone in your family or a friend. Probably um, nearly everyone in the room knows someone who feels that way, even if we don't feel that way ourselves. And so into this very delicate situation where I I know I may be speaking um, to some of you who are very much sitting on the fence and not sure which way this thing is going to go. Am I going to stay with the church? Am I going to hang in there? Or am I going to walk away and maybe stay a Christian but do it on my own? I'm going to walk by myself and leave this assembly of people into this very very delicate and important moment, I would like to say this. That first of all, I want to share an understanding with you that we cannot deny the ugliness of the sin of God's own people. The sins you have noticed are appalling. And they are unbecoming of God's own people. They're completely out of place in the opposite of holiness and righteousness that should mark the people of God. That was the case for Jeremiah. That was the case for Nehemiah. And that was the case for Jesus. Think about it. He was sitting there getting, in, getting ready to ride into an assembly of God's people who were ready to kill God in the flesh. It does not get uglier than that. He was going to an assembly of God's chosen, much-loved people that were going to kill the Son of God in the most painful way possible. So the question isn't, is the sin real and horrible? The question, excuse me, the sin is real and horrible. That has always been the case. The question is rather, will you stay with the people of God? Like Jeremiah, 
Did you know that Jeremiah was offered an opportunity to leave the people and go live in comfort in Babylon? He was an important guy, and the Babylonians knew it. And after they captured everyone, there was a day when the captain of the guard took the chains off of his wrists and said, you're free to go wherever you want to go. And I want to tell you something. You can come with me, and you can go back to Babylon with us, and you will live in great comfort for the rest of your life. And you can come. Or you can stay here in the broken down city with the humiliated people. What would you have done? He stayed. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have stayed. The question is, will you stay like Jeremiah did? The question is, will you rebuild like Nehemiah did? Will you help us rebuild? Are you willing to commit effort to coming to help the people of God? Because you love the people of God and weep over sin in the condition. Will you come and lead the way? Build in front of your own house and encourage your neighbors who are building next to you. And oversee the operation if you have to. Is there enough love in your heart for the people of God that you'll not only stay, but you'll help rebuild? Will you stay? Will you rebuild? Will you give your life for the people of God like Jesus? Will you just open up your arms, as was his posture, and just say, I'm all for you. My body is for you. My spirit is for you. I love you, people of God. My life belongs to you. Be a fierce lover of the church, Christian. This whole question really boils down to what do you believe the church really is? Is it a country club centered on a book? Or do you believe that the church is the body of Christ? If it's the body of Christ, weep and stay and rebuild and give your life. If you do those things, if you adopt that kind of a posture toward the people of God, that puts you in a long, distinguished line. Anyone can call out sin. Be a fierce lover of the church. So we notice first that there's a helpful model for us here. Just noticing Jesus' posture toward the people of God. It's helpful in terms of how we approach God's people, how we're affected by God's people, what we're willing to do for God's people. So we just notice this helpful model first. We want to notice one other thing. Just pulling two things out of this short lament. 
Our first observation comes from what Jesus does. He weeps. Our second observation comes from what he says. What he says in verses 42 through 44. And what we want to do here in the second part as we, as we wrap this up and put a bow on our mini-series on lament is we want to try to put into practice here in these remaining verses um, a really important principle of Bible study. And we have to get this right. Otherwise, we're in danger of misinterpreting what we're reading. And then if we're misinterpreting, we're probably misapplying. And so here's what we want to understand is that in a sense... Every bit of scripture is time-bound. There's real historical events that took place here, and this account was written to other people first before it was written to us. There's something time-bound and unrepeatable that we're reading about here, and it's important to understand that. Like that in about the year AD 33, there was a group of people living in the real city of Jerusalem who really did praised Jesus, and then really did crucify him, really did reject him. That really happened. That's time-bound and unrepeatable, okay? We have to understand that. We do understand that. Without really saying it out loud, we, we get it. But when we come to the scripture and we're thinking, how does this apply to my life? We have to take one more step and ask the question, is there anything timeless here? Is there any truth presented to us here that's not bound by time? that still applies today to me, to everyone? Is there a timeless truth that can be extracted from what we read? And there is. There is a timeless truth communicated to us here. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. I want to address first something that some of you might have in mind when you read through this passage. It's a, it's a legitimate question to ask about what Jesus is saying. It looks as though if the people had received him as king, that the city wouldn't have been destroyed. Is that really what the passage is saying? Like if they had received Jesus as king, would the city have been destroyed in A.D.? 70 by the Romans, because that's what Jesus is talking about in the latter verses and all the destruction that's going to take place and no stone left on top of another. That really did happen in AD 70. The Romans really did come and they really did destroy the city. Is Jesus saying if they had accepted him that that would not happen? Could that fate have been avoided? if they would have made him king on that day. Yeah, that's what he's saying. That was what would have made for peace. The destruction of the city really was a consequence of not receiving Jesus as king. Remember that the peace of Jerusalem and the peace of God's people has always been dependent on their relationship with God. As long as they were faithful to God, there was peace and prosperity. And when they were not faithful to God, when they turned their back on him, they were plundered and exiled and destroyed. (laughs) That was God's promise made to them over and over. He told them that's what would happen. It's Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 28, Isaiah 32. 
peace for the people of Israel was predicated on faithfulness to the covenant. And the rejection of God led to the plundering of God's people throughout their history, just as it will here when we come to this account. That's the time-bound element. Jesus laments his own coming rejection by God's people that will lead to their destruction. Now, here's the timeless part. Here's the timeless truth that's communicated to us here. And I'll give this to you in two parts. The rejection of Jesus as king results in destruction. The embrace of Jesus as king results in peace. That's the timeless truth. Just as true today as it was then, that the rejection of Jesus as king results in destruction. In the embrace of Jesus as king, on the other hand, results in peace. It was true for that city on that day. And what I want you to understand is that that is still true for your life, for you as an individual. And I want to take a moment to press that home to you and ask you if you have understood that that is a timeless truth for every person on the planet. The rejection of Jesus as king results in destruction and the embrace of Jesus as king results in peace. I'm going to press that home to two groups of people and then we'll be done, okay? I'm going to talk first to those who have not embraced Jesus. Show you how that applies to your life. Then I want to talk to those who have embraced Jesus. Say something about how this truth applies to your life still, okay? First of all, if you have not embraced Jesus as king, as Lord, as your exclusive and necessary savior from sin, you need to know that the rejection of the salvation that Jesus offers will lead to your destruction. That is the end of that path. A rejection of Jesus as king leads to an eternal destruction in hell. May not happen today. You may not feel the threat today. Just like the city of Jerusalem felt no threat of that for 40 years. And then it happened. And it came upon them. I want you to know that what I just said about Not receiving Jesus as king leads to an eternal destruction in hell. I want you to know that I really believe that. I believe that it's true because the Bible tells us that it's true. But I want you to know that I believe something else also. I believe that this timeless truth is impossible for a person to receive on their own. 
that in our natural condition, we will not receive this truth. It's too foolish. You know, the Bible calls it foolish. It's the foolishness of God that triumphs over and trumps the wisdom of man. So if you're sitting there thinking, I can't believe this foolish message, I want you to know that the Bible itself calls its own message foolish. How could we really believe that our considerate, kinder-than-all-of-us neighbor who is an adherent of a different religion could actually be headed toward an eternity of destruction simply because they have not made Jesus of Nazareth king? They're so kind, so helpful. How could it possibly be true? How could everything depend on Jesus? If I've just described how you feel, please allow me to point out to you that if you just don't see it today, if you don't see any truth in that statement, Please understand that these people that we're reading about in Luke 19, all those years ago, those people in Jerusalem who were going to reject Jesus and be destroyed, they didn't see it either. We read in our text that it was hidden from their eyes. They couldn't see that the rejection of this Jesus would lead to their own destruction. It was hidden from their eyes. According to verse 42, it was hidden from them. And I'm just telling you, it may be hidden from your eyes too. These twin truths that rejecting Jesus brings destruction and embracing him brings peace. It's not just you who can't see it. It was also them. And understand this as well, that when Jesus says that these things were hidden from their eyes, he's not saying that these truths were like buried under the ground or hidden away in a cave or that God was hiding them behind a curtain and playing hide and seek with the people so they couldn't see it. That's not why they were hidden. The truths were plain and out in the open. I make an open statement today. That Jesus Christ is king of the universe and earth's only savior. I say that openly. And if you don't see it, it's not because God is hiding it from you under a rock. The problem is not with the truth. The problem is with us. We're blind. It's not that the truth is hidden. It's that our eyes have been blinded by sin. So we don't see and acknowledge the truth that's plain. It's right out of 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers so that they do not see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is hidden from you because, frankly, we love sin. I love sin. And we do not want a king. We don't want it to be true. So brothers and sisters, friend, understand that we are blind and cannot receive this truth and embrace the kingship of Jesus on our own. It's impossible. 
because we're blind. And who being blind can heal themselves? But what is impossible for man is possible with God. God can open the eyes of the blind. And in Mark 8, if you're sitting there thinking, okay, I, I can't receive this as being true about Jesus and the The pastor up front is saying that that's because my eyes are blind, that I'm not seeing it, that I can't heal myself and I'm dependent on the mercy of God. I suppose if I'm ever going to see the truth, I want you to know that in Mark 8, there's this beautiful account of a man who was blind and Jesus takes him by the hand and leads him out of the city by himself. And outside the city, in the quiet, away from everyone else, he heals him of his blindness. That's what our God is like. And if you do not have faith in Jesus and you just can't make yourself believe in him, go to him and tell him, Jesus, I am blind to your kingship. I don't see it. And I can't heal myself of this blindness. So it's all dependent on you. Have mercy on me. Make me to see it. The real warning sign is when someone approaches God saying, I can. The words that receive the blessing and the mercy and the help of God are the words, I can't. There is nothing I'm more sure of in this life than the mercy of Jesus Christ toward the person who comes to him and says, I can't. Everyone that comes to him in the scriptures, in the posture of, I can't, is shown mercy and helped and healed. I have every confidence in the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive him as your king and know peace. Peace with God forever. And I want to say this finally and pretty quickly to those of you who have received, who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as King. Maybe it's been the case for you for a long time. I want to say to you and I want to say to myself this morning that these twin truths are just as true for us and just as applicable to us that the rejection of Jesus as king still destroys and the embrace of Jesus as king is what brings peace. Sin still destroys. It destroys families. It destroys joy. It destroys intimacy between spouses. It destroys communities. It destroys churches. Sin is always destructive. And if you have not made Jesus king in the fabric of your life, sin will slowly or quickly destroy. Not eternally, but it will destroy families, communities, churches, ministries, and joy. On the other hand, if you would lay your head down on the pillow in peace at night, and is there any better feeling than that? 
know that peace, peace that allows you to sleep comes from having a subdued soul underneath the kingship of Jesus where you have let him direct your feet into paths of righteousness and said, okay, you're king. I'm following you today. Quiet your soul before your king. Receive the prince of peace. He's the king of righteousness. Embracing him as king is what always brings peace. Those are our meditations for Palm Sunday 2022. Be a fierce lover of the church. Weep, stay, rebuild, give your life. Embrace the Lord Jesus as king and know peace. May the cross of Christ be on your mind and heart this week and may you truly worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, I bow my heart before you with um, everyone listening. We, uh, we just want to admit to you that we're no better than those people cheering him on that first Palm Sunday and those people waiting for him in the city, that human nature just has not changed. This desire to be king of our own lives. And we think we're doing it the right way. And all the while, our feet are in slippery places and we slide toward destruction. If the eyes were not open to see him as king on that day, Father, I pray, I pray in the Holy Spirit and for the power of the Holy Spirit to open eyes today to the beauty and truth of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, as King of all, reigning now in heaven, one day returning to reign here. Lord, we hail him as king today, saved by his blood. We love you and pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.